0: Welcome to Social Security Chat Chat, episode 231, for the 12th of February, 2016. I'm Chester Wisniewski, coming to you from Abingdon, United Kingdom, with my colleague Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester.
1: Uh, Nice to be in the same room as you recording the podcast, and not far apart across some great wide ocean.
0: I find editing it harder when you're in the same room, because of course our microphones that we're recording on pick each other up. Yes,
1: dealing with that sometimes five second latency that you get out of a 3G internet connection across the world can be quite challenging. Uh, I guess if you're, you're one of those surgeons doing a remote control surgery, it must be terribly difficult. Well,
0: I, I was I was thinking about that when uh, they were talking about the Mars uh, rovers and stuff. and I was thinking,
1: <laughs> Turn left, turn left <laughs> in 45 minutes time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, one of our favorite topics came up in this week's security news that uh, I was really pleased to see, which is that President Obama kind of formally endorsed two-factor authentication. And, and I just got excited at, at levels, right? Because I'm going... Okay, one, the president of the United States actually knows what two-factor authentication is, not that he's not a smart person, but it seems like a industry minutia for someone of that level to know about. And then the second wave of that hit, which was, wow, the president knows what this is. That just says how important verifying people's identities online really is and how bad a job we're doing.
1: It does. Uh and, you know, he wasn't just talking about federal employees or public servants. He says, we're doing more to help empower Americans to protect themselves online. And that's getting everybody interested in getting away from just having a password that once stolen can let the crooks basically raid your account for days, weeks, or months. And I think that's a good move, provided that we don't see 2FA as this kind of touchstone that as long as you've got it, you'll be
0: okay. I'm worried that People are being misled to think that things that call themselves a second factor really aren't. And, and I talked to you earlier, about my credit card company, you know, asked me my password and then asked me for the answer to the secret question kind of thing.
1: I can't answer the secret question because nobody knows what this is. It's secret. <laughs> it's just a, what a crazy idea, a secret question when they mean a secret answer. Two factors doesn't mean you split your password in half and type in the first four digits and then the second four. That's just two half factors.
0: Right. And, and the, the resistance, I think, that uh, we've seen in the past to using an actual token, it, we're kind of overcoming, right? I think a lot of business employees have no problem with carrying around that RSA token or the VeriSign token or that kind of thing. But then we, we're now running into the, the, the second problem, which is how many of these tokens can I carry or what do we use? And it seems like the, the de facto fallback is to use our mobile phones, which makes me a little queasy.
1: Yes, there is that problem that it's still technically two-factor authentication if you go to your mobile browser and type in a password that you remember, and then you go to the Authenticator app and you type in the cryptographic sequence number that it's produced. So it is still technically two-factor authentication, but of course it's more like one-and-a-half-factor authentication when you type in your password on your mobile device and then look at the SMS or the authenticator magic number on the same device.
0: But we've talked about this on the chat chat before from the perspective of the perfect being the enemy of the good. And if we could get to the point where people are using their mobile phones as a second factor, instead of just the passwords that we've proven we're really bad at creating and storing, then that's a step forward. And we'll worry about proper two-factor down the road once we can get the first step right, I think.
1: I agree. And i Even if the crooks have got malware on your phone or on your computer when you're typing in the password and entering that code, if they haven't got the cryptographic seed, say, for your authentication sequence, all they've got is the password which will work next time and a two-factor code which will not, then it does raise the bar for them. They may be able to rip you off right now, but if they want to rip you off next time and the time after and the time after, they have to retain that malicious presence on your computer to steal that changing code every single time.
0: So the federal government in the US isn't necessarily good at practicing what it preaches. Obviously, the president of the United States is the executive head of the US government, but the Internal Revenue Service, which actually falls under the president's part of uh, the branch of government the president is in charge of, has a very interesting concept of second factor when it relates to uh, tax fraud and identity fraud. And uh, I I have a hard time even getting my head around it. Maybe you can explain what the IRS is up to with all these uh, pins.
1: Basically, if you're going to do e-filing, you're going to file electronically, and of course it's tax filing season in the US right now, this is an ideal time for a crook who knows enough about you to jump online, do a fraudulent tax return in your name, under-declare your income, claim a refund, and then run off with the money. And so the IRS has this thing called an e-filing PIN, electronic filing PIN, which is a code that you acquire somehow that you use as a fact- an extra factor of authentication when you're filing your return. Unfortunately, there's a portal you can go to, and you can give the same information you need to submit the return in the first place, it seems, like your social security number, name and address, and it will issue a PIN for you, which you can then type in on the tax return site. As you can imagine, the crooks are loving this. The IRS has admitted that crooks had a database of close to 500,000 social security numbers. They then did a brute force attack of account after account and managed to come up with 101,000 e-filing pins, which gives them basically a 100,000 identities that they can go and commit text return fraud against.
0: Yeah, I mean, this sounds like security theater again. Like, oh, we're going to put a second factor in, but we'll make it so that it's actually completely rendered useless through the recovery process. I don't know how we keep making these mistakes. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm I, just I'm dumbfounded. Well, since this seems to be the United States edition of the Chet chat Chat, uh, the next story is about the Director of National Intelligence for the United States, uh, James Clapper. And uh, he made some statements about, he, he didn't so much as say that the NSA necessarily uses your IoT devices to spy on you, but was warning the public in general to be considerate of the idea that if you've planted microphones and cameras all around your house and somebody wants to Uh, monitor your activity, whether that's legal, spying, law enforcement, whatever it might be, you should think that those devices might be used against you as much as you think you're using them for you.
1: It's a great reminder to us that you may indeed have planted just those devices given the often crashing lack of security that we see in IoT devices, including those that allegedly have to do with security. I mean, in a world like that, you would be very remiss not to assume that NSA, etc. aren't going to use exactly the same information because it's there.
0: Yeah, I have like classic pictures in my mind of 1960s movies of the FBI sneaking into, you know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's hotel room to, to plant the bug in the lamp so that they can spy on his activities and thinking, why would you bother doing that when the person has a a Google Chromecast sitting on the desk that you can just simply tap into the microphone or the smart television or, you know, the, whatever it might be. I mean, I, I picked up a new smart TV uh, over the holiday period to play with, and I really came to the conclusion about security on the thing that the best answer is to disconnect it from my Wi-Fi and not let an Ethernet cable within a meter of it. There, there's just no way that I'm going to take a device that has microphones and cameras built into it and then just trust that maybe the firmware will get updated someday.
1: Yes, and that whole problem that if you're going to have a cheap computer built down to a price that's self-contained, runs on batteries and sits in the corner, connecting to your Wi-Fi network, a great convenience, so you don't need to have a cable to plug into it, then somehow it has to know your Wi-Fi password. And you better hope that that Wi-Fi password has been protected seriously enough in the device.
0: Well, this this is a good segue, Duck, uh, in that for a couple podcasts now, I've mentioned that I'll be doing some demonstrations on IoT insecurities and how we can help you hopefully provide some security for these devices, like setting up a separate Wi-Fi network for that smart kettle so that at least if it does disclose the password, you're not putting it on the same LAN as sensitive information you have. But I was thinking more than um, for the folks that, that can't attend RSA, which is the vast majority of our listeners, uh, we've decided to do this Security SOS series, right? So we'll have an opportunity to talk about this again uh, in a little bit more depth for people that are interested in IoT security.
1: Yes, uh, it's the week from the 14th to the 18th of March. Keep your eye out on Naked Security. We'll be announcing each day's webinar. Uh, they only last for half an hour. We'll be running them, if you like, like a sort of NPR or a BBC Radio 4 uh, science program, if you like, there'll be an interviewer, uh, uh, who will be me and a range of guests from, uh, positions around Sophos from our global IT security chap, um, through to Chester. And Chester will be on the last day on the Friday on the 18th of March. And he's, will share his experiences with these IoT devices because it's really important that if we're responsible for building IoT devices and the firmware and the software that goes with them, that we start thinking about security first. And it's also important that as users and and consumers of these devices, that we make our voice heard to make sure that the vendors are thinking like that. Security at the moment either comes second, third, or somewhere even well off the
0: list. Great. Well, hopefully some of our listeners will join us for that once we get the uh, registrations up, and we'll alert everyone to that. And the the last story I picked, just because it's kind of a pet story for me, uh, about Wired Magazine's controversial ad-blocking policy and how they're saying, Hey, basically watch our ads or pay 10 bucks a week and you can read all our stories and it'll be ad free. And personally, you know, I remember bringing this up on an early chat chat with you with regard to Facebook. I said, you know, I would use Facebook if I could turn off all the ads and privacy things I don't like, and I would happily pay for it, right? I'd, I'd, I'd give them my credit card and I'd pay five bucks, 10 bucks a month, For the service of Facebook, if I could get rid of all the things about Facebook that I don't like. And so I thought, well, what if I monetize it? And then I don't have to have all those things. And of course, Facebook hasn't done that. But Wired has taken that step like many other uh, newspapers and things. In fact, here in the UK today, the Independent announced they're going to stop printing at the end of March, major uh, print newspaper here. Why is this so controversial? And what's the security side of this, right? Because I personally... I like free internet stuff, but I'm afraid of ads because I know they can infect my computer. But on the other hand, uh, somebody's got to pay for the internet, right?
1: Yes, I agree, Chester, that there's, there's nothing wrong with it. And you shouldn't go, oh, well, it's bad because ads are inherently bad. What's interesting is to look at the comments that we get back when we do ad blocker related stories on Naked Security, that an increasing number of the people who comment are not saying I hate ads. They're all terrible. I want them to disappear, which is probably what people would have said a year or two ago. And maybe the main reason that ad blockers came into existence. I think people are starting to accept that it's okay to have ads, that it's okay for people to get paid for actually writing good content that appear, appears online. But of course, we're now increasingly threatened by malvertising, which is where a site that does use ads isn't serving them off its own servers. It isn't vetting those ads before it publishes them. It's inking a deal with maybe a 100 different ad networks, each of which is inking a deal with maybe a 1,000 different ad providers. And if any one of those ads contains malicious JavaScript or a dangerous redirect or a dodgy link, you could be at risk simply by letting that ad be displayed.
0: Yeah, this ad thing isn't gonna go away and it's only getting more complicated because from a security perspective uh, we, you also have the SSL problem right which is we want everybody's website to be secure but of course those ads are usually third-party ads and so that means they're cross domain and you know you start getting certificate errors and problems when you have a page made up of insecure and secure content and all these different things right so there's that. And then there's also what Google's been up to, right? In, in some countries, I believe it might just be the US, that Google allows you now to uh, pay like $10 a month. And then any sites that use Google ads, no ads will appear. And then they take the $10 you give them and divvy it up to the websites that you visit that use Google's ad network. And that might be another way for people who really don't like ads to get away from them. I mean, obviously, doing it just through Google doesn't solve the problem when you've also got other behemoths like Yahoo that, that don't participate in that. But at least we're experimenting and we're having a conversation about it because we've largely been ignoring this for a long time. And I think both the security risks of malvertising and the, the whole thing about who's going to pay for the Internet has largely just been ignored. If I have ads allowed and turned on and I never see
1: that I'm the one millionth visitor to XYZ website again, I shall be a happy man.
0: We're making progress, I think. And if you want to know more about malvertising, uh, and you're at RSA, back to that point again, please come by the SOFO stand at RSA. Uh, Our colleague John Shire is going to be doing a presentation at our stand a few times a day on malvertising, explaining how it works and doing a, a bit of a demonstration.
1: And if you can't make it to RSA, John is one of the presenters, of course, in our Security SOS Week in the middle of March. Perfect. And his talk is indeed about malvertising.
0: Well, that's a great way to conclude Social Security Chat Chat 231. Uh those of you coming to RSA again, we always welcome you, and there will be a code on the website and on Naked Security, I'm sure, for you to register for free for the exposition if you'd like to come out to the expo but can't afford to pay for the full conference. We'd like to really thank all of you who spent time to vote in the crowdsourcing uh, competition thing that was run at RSA this year for additional talks. Our colleague Roland was uh, uh, chosen as one of the top 17 papers that were proposed. So he'll be presenting at RSA along with myself, uh, Dimitri Semiseko, and James Line. Uh, so congratulations to Roland and thanks to our our listeners and readers on Naked Security for helping us uh, accomplish that. And uh, other than that, as always, for the latest security news, don't forget to visit Com. All of our podcasts are available on RSS. They're on iTunes. They're on the TuneIn app. They're soon to be in the new Google uh, Music uh, podcast directory that's launching soon. And until next time, stay secure.